good to see everybody that's come back out this evening. And tonight, well, let me back up and say it like this. About six, seven weeks ago, uh, TJ preached a lesson, an excellent lesson for that matter, on the sin of David and Bathsheba, and just looking at the whole process and so forth as that happens. Tonight, and there, there were some questions raised, not about TJ's lesson, but some questions raised regarding David and Bathsheba, and as you know, you can put questions out in the box on the table in the foyer, that's just a little blurb there, but uh, you can do that, and Wes or I, uh, one will address those questions, and you may ask either one of us in particular certainly to do that. But tonight we've got some questions regarding David and Bathsheba, and so we want to take a look at those. And if you've got the outlines, you see immediately that I put the questions on here, but I will read them for those of you that might not have it. Question number one, David and Bathsheba obviously sinned, but why were they not put to death per the law, and the law of Moses, of course. We'll talk about that. Second question is, following the whole incident of the uh, sin with Bathsheba and, uh, you know, her husband and all of that, why was David, quote, end quote, allowed to stay married to Bathsheba. And then question number three, and to have multiple wives, because he already had several wives when he married her, to have multiple wives for that matter. So the three main questions, obviously, we're going to deal with. I want to start with just some certain truths that we can look in Scripture, I think we all can see. If you, you may want to turn to Second Samuel chapter 11 and 12, and that will be, and I'm not going to go through this story. I trust that everybody here really knows that story and knows it well. And of course, as I said, T.J. preached on it just uh, about seven weeks ago. But in a nutshell, you know that David, the king, went out, saw Bathsheba bathing, lusted for her, committed adultery for her. In fact, both of them are married. It was adultery without question. And then you know that following that, she was with child. He uh, initiated a conspiracy to try to cover it up. And when that didn't work, he conspired with his captain to murder Uriah, the wife of, of, I mean, the husband of Bathsheba. So without question, these sins take place. And I'm not going tonight by any stretch say that there wasn't sin and gross sin involved. There is. I think a certain truth also, number two, that we can look at, and I believe this is fair to say this, if we look at chapter 12 when Nathan confronted David, and you can see that in the opening verses of 2 Samuel 12, David, you know, did not go unpunished. Now, the question is not why was David not punished, because I think the question is asked understanding he was punished. But the law says death, and why was he not put to death? But let's just acknowledge that David did not go unpunished. Um, there are several reasons that are given. I'm going to give you a couple of them, and then I'm going to give you what I think is the, the reason why. Because that's really the main question. David was, as I put on the outline, a man after God's own heart. Now, I'm not copying out there. Some would look at that and say... Um, and it's easy to say, you know, that God deals with people that he knows, quote-unquote, their heart is right. We talked a little about this in my class downstairs this morning. But God deals with people when he knows their heart is right differently 
from some, you know, from someone, for example, that he just says regards evil in his heart and, and so forth. I don't think that's the answer. David was a man after God's own heart. I think there are several things in his favor, although I'm not saying this answers the question, but let's just mention them briefly. Upon being confronted by Nathan the prophet and realizing, maybe really understanding or being made to face or however you want to say it, what he had done, one of the things in David's favor is he does it immediately admit admit his guilt. There is no... We sometimes see in the Bible excuses given by people. Maybe we've been folks that tried to give an excuse for some sin we've committed. He doesn't do that. He sinned and he says that. So he admits his guilt and he repents. I think we can easily see that. I'm not going to take time tonight to turn over to Psalm 51, but I would get you to do that. The ancient parenthetical note about that psalm is that this is the psalm he wrote after the visit by Nathan and after coming to himself and realizing what he had done. He does beg God for forgiveness. He does beg God for a clean heart. I think there are other psalms that indicate. Psalm 32, to me, is a great indication of the change in life. So let me just say this for all of our benefit. If we've sinned and we've been confronted by that, and we've maybe had, as some people like to call it, a come-to-Jesus moment. That's not necessarily a bad term. But the idea where we, like the prodigal son, come to ourselves and we realize what we've done, we need to be like David. If we're a man or a person after God's own heart, then what we're going to do is admit what we've done, ask for forgiveness, and change our life. Repentance is going to follow. It did with David. So you can easily argue, and I think we could look in Scripture and see this from Second Samuel, the middle of chapter 12 on, it's a life-changing event. David was punished. Go with me to Second Samuel 12, and following this story that Nathan tells, you remember of the guy that slaughtered the man's little pet sheep, and he was rich and he had all these sheep, but he took the man's only possession, the only thing he had, he killed it. David is wroth, you know. God needs to be put to death for that. Thou art the man. Now, following that, pick up reading with me, if you will, in verse 7. Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel. I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your bosom. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, or we would say if that hadn't been enough, I would moreover have given unto you such and such things. Basically saying, I would have given you anything. I love you, David, and I would have done anything for you. So verse 9, wherefore or why have you despised or disregarded the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife. You've slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. In other words, he conspired. Remember, he put him out there on the front line so he would die. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Here are the punishments. The sword is never going to depart from your house because you have despised, or we would say disregarded me, and you've taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives from before your eyes and give them unto your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. 
In other words, we would say in broad daylight. For you did it secretly, verse 12. And we might say it like this. You did it secretly and for whatever reasons, and we could discuss those, be it just most people don't know about it, the ones who do are afraid to come forward, or whatever it is. We can speculate about all of that. You did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun in broad daylight. Now he goes on there. God goes on to, you know, David, of course, is, uh, like I say, he repents, he acknowledges, etc. And God adds the child that Bathsheba is going to have is going to die. So... If we say, and I have heard people say, David got away with murder, literally. I heard that not too long ago. And the truth is, for a while, we would say David got away not only with adultery, but murder. But if we look at this passage and we say David got away with what he did, I think that's unfair. David didn't get away with anything. David committed the sin. David is confronted by God through his prophet, and David is punished. And we might, and I'm, this is not the story tonight or the lesson tonight, but we might go on and look at the fulfillment of each of these prophecies. I mean, the idea that the sword never departs out of his house. David's life changes, but David's house, his family, never changes. It goes from bad to worse to worse. We can cite rebellion, we can cite incest and rape, we can, we can uh, all kinds of things that happen within his home. Evil being raised up against him, even at the hands of his own sons. We can talk about the fact that David's life from that point on, even though God said, I gave you all this and I would have given you anything. From this point on, David is not blessed. Everything is restricted from David. David changes but the circumstances of what he's done do, do not change. So I think it's unfair to say David got away with it. Now, you know, I'd like to start with that. However, that's not the question. So, and one final point as we're looking at this, just these, as I put on the outline, initial thoughts to consider. The third initial thought to consider. Now, the first one is they sin, no question. The second one is David is punished, no question. But the third is this. How much guilt belongs on Bathsheba? And I'm just going to mention to you that both her innocence and her guilt are argued. In other words, if you look at the story, she's at, she goes out, she bathes, David sees it, they commit adultery. He sends for her, she comes, they commit adultery, etc. And then all of the other that follows. Sometimes her innocence is, uh, is, is a verb because it's attributed to what amounts to power rape. Um, if you, we don't live in such a society, but if we did live in such a society where there was an absolute ruler and he orders for someone to come to him, they have a choice. They can either come or risk dying. Well, she comes. And then if he decides he wants to commit adultery with her, he wants to take her or whatever, there really is little she can do. Again, she has a choice. She can fight and scream and beat on him, and, and chances are she's going to be raped, but then she'll be put to death. And so sometimes her innocence is based on all of that, and sometimes people will say it amounts to power rape, and she's innocent in this situation. 
And sometimes when that's argued, there get in, gets into, it gets into this whole philosophical idea then about the innocence of Bathsheba and the innocence of the child that comes. I'm not really going to go further with that, but you can feel free to ask me about that, and I'd be glad to discuss it with you. Some people, on the other hand, argue for her complete guilt. And they will say, you know, she went out and she exposed herself. She didn't have to do that. She came when David called. She didn't have to do that. She is not seen, at least in Scripture, resisting. The Bible doesn't say one way or the other. But she could have resisted, etc. Therefore, she's guilty of adultery as well. Whether you take the innocence or guilt of Bathsheba, it might deal with the side of the question, because, because the question, why do I go into all that? Well, the question is, why were David and Bathsheba not put to death? Some would argue they, uh, Bathsheba is not because she's innocent. And I'm not really going to take that position either. Um, that that's the reason she is not put to death. But it still leaves us with David. So let's deal with it. So the specific questions that are asked, why were David and Bathsheba not put to death per the law? Go back with me, if you will, to the book of Leviticus. And let's just make it plain that the book of Leviticus, the Old Testament law, definitely calls for the death of the adulterer. Okay? So let's look at Leviticus chapter 20 and go down with me to verse 10. And it says simply that the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, this is Leviticus 20, verse 10, the man that commits adultery with another man's wife, even he that commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now that appears to be clear. So we have a, an incident where a man, or where a woman is married, at, at the very least. A woman is married to another man, and a man takes the wife of someone, and the two of them commit adultery. The Bible is saying they shall surely be put to death. So, the only thing you can conclude from that verse is that the law of Moses specifically demands capital punishment for adultery. Now, that's not the case in the New Testament, so I don't want anybody to leave here and say that I said adulterers ought to be put to death. We are not calling for that. But in the Old Testament, that was the law. So adulterers were to be put to death. And without doubt, that's exactly what happened with David and Bathsheba. They committed adultery. She was the wife of another man. He's the husband of other women, but she's the wife of another man. They commit adultery. So without question, so far, and I stress that, the law of Moses seems to say they needed to die. But it begs the question, and so let's beg this question, why is David and Bathsheba, why are they not put to death? I mean, if God goes to the length of sending a prophet to confront David and to charge David with exactly what he's done, why does God not then send that prophet to say, and David, per Leviticus 20, verse 10, you and Bathsheba need to die. So it enters into a whole big debate. You can go online, and I'm sure you can find a lot of people debating this whole situation. This is one of the more well-known stories and one of the more well-known debated subjects out of the Bible. Many times, critics of the Bible will argue for favoritism. You would say, and I would say, God is a fair judge. He's just. He is without respect of persons, without prejudice. He looks at everybody the same. 
All of those kind of statements. He's fair, he's equitable, etc. A critic will say, yeah, right. What about David? And so they will argue David was, and I've heard all kinds of things said about David. David is God's little pet. David is, you know, he went out and had that big victory over Goliath and kind of scored points for the rest of his life and all that kind of thing. Well, is that what's going on? Is it favoritism? Or is it maybe even worse? It's the law, Leviticus 20, verse 10, that the adulterer and the adulteress be put to death, and God is just ignoring that. He sends Nathan to confront David, and he says, this is what I'm going to do. I want you to go, I want you to make him admit what he's done, and then I'm going to make it hard on him, but I can't kill him. Is God just ignoring the law? Is there a situation, a special case, we would say, an exception to the rule, or in fact, as we look in the Old Testament, is it, and, and listen carefully what I'm going to say, is it exact compliance with the law? And here's why I would say that. If it is favoritism, or it's an exception, or however you want to dress it up, if it is God in some way ignoring what his own law says, then it makes God a hypocrite at best. He says one thing, he does another. Or a liar at worst. Because he's saying in Leviticus 20 and verse 10, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. But he's not doing that. And we've seen God execute capital punishment. He doesn't need Nathan the prophet or anyone else. We've seen God execute it just directly from heaven. Let's not forget Uzzah, and, you know, being struck dead when he touched the ark and, and situations like that. So it's a fair question, and I know there are some here that have even asked, asked this question. I've even been asked this in a public class, so I know there are some here that have asked this exact question. What's the deal with David? Why is he getting away with this? Well, again, he's not getting away with it, but he's not dying either. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Let's keep reading in the law. If that were the only verse in the Old Testament law about adulterers, I'd have a big problem with it myself, but it's not. So let's keep reading. Go with me to Deuteronomy 22, and I'm going to drop down to about verse 22. Do I want 20? No, I don't. I want 22. Deuteronomy 22, 22. And I want you to listen carefully to what it says here. Verse 22. If a man be found lying with a woman married to a husband, then they shall both of them die. Both the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so shall thou put away evil from Israel. Oh, now wait a minute. <laughs> we go to the New Testament. And before you leap here and leap on me, I want to make a New Testament parallel. We go to the New Testament. If you believe, you shall be saved. If that's the only verse that were there, I would tell somebody the only thing you've got to do is believe and you'll be saved. It's not. We go to another verse and we see that you've got to confess. Confession is made unto salvation in Romans 10. Repentance is unto life, Acts 17. Baptism is for the remission of sins, Acts 2.38, and many other passages. So there's not just one thing said, and there's not just one thing said in the Old Testament, and this is very important in verse 22. Because notice, 
It's not just the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. It is if a man is found lying with a woman. We would say, if two people are caught in the act of adultery, then the law is they be put to death. Now, that's not the only thing it's going to say, but just understand, we've got a verse that says adulterers are put to death. Now we've got a verse that says if they're caught in the act, then they're to be put to death. So Deuteronomy 22.22 is calling for capital punishment, but it is placing a stipulation on the capital punishment that the adulterers be found in the act. Hold your hand at Deuteronomy. Go over with me to John 8 for a second. I believe people even in New Testament times, we'd go a thousand years later, and they understand that's what the law is. You can't just say, so-and-so committed adultery, they've got to be put to death. No, if you remember in John 8, there's an interesting story where a woman is brought to Jesus and she's accused of adultery. Remember that? And when they bring her to Jesus, drop down to verse 2, it says, The scribes and Pharisees came unto him, or brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, verse 4, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. They understand that if you're going to have someone stoned to death, you can't just simply drag a woman up in front of a judge or a rabbi or whomever it might be and say, this woman's an adulteress, and have the rabbi say, yeah, take her outside the city and stone her to death. So they acknowledge that she's taken in the very act. So a person might look at this story and say, well, now isn't this where Jesus said, the one that's guilty cast the first stone, and she doesn't get stoned to death. That's right. Because there's something glaringly missing here. In order for adultery to take place, it takes two, you know, and they don't bring the guy. And in fact, Jesus at least indicates, and I'm, I'm not saying this is necessarily the interpretation, but there's strong indication, that she may in fact be a prostitute, and they may all in fact be guilty. In other words, they wouldn't have a problem just throwing a prostitute to the wolves, like, you know, kill her, what big deal, what does that make? But if you're without sin... You know, if you want to testify she's caught in the very act and you're without sin, then you cast the first stone and they all go away. But you see, at least you understand in that story, it's not just an adulteress put to death, it is she's found or caught in the very act. And that's the stipulation for Deuteronomy 22. But that's not the only stipulation. So let's stay and go back to Deuteronomy. I hope your finger was there. And go back with me to Deuteronomy 17. So let's keep reading. Deuteronomy 17, and go down to verse 2, and let's just notice something that's said here. If there be found among you, Deuteronomy 17, 2, if there's found among you within any of thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a man or a woman that has wrought wickedness. Now, this is just a generic law here. Anybody that's done evil, and we would say a capital crime is the idea, in the sight of the Lord thy God, in transgressing his covenant, and it goes on there, but drop down to verse 5. What should be done to that person? Then you shall bring forth that man or that woman who has committed that wicked thing, that capital crime, unto your gates, even that man or that woman, incidentally, the unto your gates. That's why they took Stephen outside the city. You couldn't kill a man inside the city. But take him outside unto the gates, even that man or that woman, and you shall stone them with stones till they die. Verse 6. 
at the mouth of two witnesses. Why did Jesus say, he that is without sin cast the first stone? Because Jesus doesn't catch the woman, quote-unquote, in the act of adultery. In order for her to be put to death, there have to be two viable witnesses telling the truth about her sin. Master, we took this woman. She's caught in the very act. Okay, which two of you is going to step forward and be the witnesses? Which two of you are without sin, for that matter? But you're going to come forward and be the witnesses in this case against her. Remember, they all went away from the least to the greatest. No one steps forward as a witness. And the law of Moses said, at the mouth of two witnesses, or three, verse 6, that person shall be, uh, that, uh, let me back up and read. At the mouth of two witnesses, or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death, a capital crime, be put to death. But at the mouth of just one witness, he shall not be put to death. And that gets us to the problem. In the case of David and Bathsheba, I'm not saying there were no witnesses. I don't know if anyone, you know, actually sees them commit adultery, but let's be honest. It's known by a bunch of people. The murder of Uriah is known by his captain and others. And there are even other innocent people that apparently die or there's a good possibility they die too. But no one is coming forward. We don't ever see that. We don't see anyone step forward and say, hey, David or Bathsheba or both committed adultery and I saw it and I testify against them. We don't see that at all. There are not those two witnesses or three witnesses against David and Bathsheba. We could keep reading here. Deuteronomy 19. You're probably in your same opening. Go down to verse 15. One witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin. In any sin that he sins, at the mouth of two witnesses, or at the mouth of three witnesses, shall the matter be established. I think you can see it's clear. If you're going to put someone to death, if you're going to stone someone to death, you have to have at least two witnesses. Think about it for a moment. We come to the New Testament, we see two people supposedly commit a capital crime of blasphemy, and we see them put to death. You remember the struggle there was in the Sanhedrin to get two witnesses to agree against Jesus? Why did they go to all that trouble? They wanted him dead, and the Romans didn't obviously didn't care. They just want the mess to die down. So why did they go through all that charade of finding two witnesses? Because you have to have it according to the law. Same thing is true of Stephen. Same parallel situation. Gotta have two witnesses. Why? Because it's a capital crime. And in order for Paul to go outside the city with those with him and stone Stephen to death, you have to have two or three witnesses. And they don't have that in either case until they get people to save And then, of course, Jesus and Stephen die innocently. But you know, if you think about it, this two or three witnesses rule is not just to the Old Testament. If we were to go to the New Testament, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 18... And if you remember, when a person is going to be withdrawn from, it's not just that they've done wrong. It's not just that I go to the church and I say, hey, guys, Wes, I'll pick on you. Hey, guys, Wes sinned this sin against me, and he won't straighten it up. And they say, oh, well, Michael, we like you better. We agree with you. We know you're telling the truth, so, Wes, you're withdrawn from. Now, the Bible makes it clear. If you're going to establish a matter to execute what would be Christian capital punishment, 
in withdrawing fellowship from an individual, you're going to have to have, verse 16, at the mouth of two or three witnesses. I'll give you another one. If you look over at 1 Timothy chapter 5, and you're talking about elders there, look down in verse 19, and this is where Paul is basically warning Timothy not to be too quick to you know, jump on a, a elders for something they've done or whatever. You need, as he says in verse 19, two or three witnesses. The idea in Scripture is a matter when you execute the greatest punishment against somebody, a matter has to be well established. And I think our courts are smart to err maybe sometimes on the side of demanding absolute evidence. But if you're going to put somebody to death, or you're going to execute some great punishment against somebody, you need to be sure. And that's what God is doing here. So in their case, the first question, and I've taken by far the longest, but it's, I think, the hardest question. Why were David and Bathsheba not put to death per the law? And my answer to that would would be they were not put to death as per the law. They committed adultery, and adultery is a capital crime. A, they were not caught in the act. At least there's no revelation in Scripture they were. And subsequently, B, there were not those two or three witnesses. So when Nathan comes to David and confronts him, he doesn't get away with it. They don't get away with it. And those of you that have lost a child or know someone who has, you understand they ain't getting away with it. But they are not to be stoned to death because the law demands something that doesn't exist here. And that's the witnesses. All right, second question. Why was David allowed to stay married? Go back to 2 Samuel 11 with me for a moment. Why is David allowed to stay married or to marry Bathsheba, for that matter? If I can find chapter 11. Go down to the very end of chapter 11. In a nutshell, here's the story. David is married. Bathsheba's married. He sees her bathing. He wants her. He takes her. They commit adultery. She is with child. He tries to cover it up. Uriah won't fall for it, and so Uriah is put to death, or he has him killed. Now, she is a widow. And I realize she's a widow by hook and crook. I get that. But she is free to marry. If we were to look at Romans chapter 7 and verses 2 and 3, the Bible tells us clearly that a woman is bound to her husband so long as he lives. Now, if another is married to her, while she is married to another man, then she's committing adultery. It makes it clear in Romans 7 that is the case. But if her husband is dead and she marries someone else, it's not adultery. Look with me at 2 Samuel. All of that has taken place. And now in verse 26 of 2 Samuel 11, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband And when the morning was past, David sent and fetched her to his house, and she became his wife. He doesn't marry her until after Uriah is dead. So Bathsheba's free to marry. She's a widow. But question number three, and to have multiple wives for that matter. David was a polygamist. Go back with me to the book of Genesis, and let's go all the way back to Genesis 4 for a moment. There's been a great question all through the centuries, and sometimes there have been religions and lands and practices, and there still are today. You could go to certain parts in the world, they practice polygamy. 
sometimes when their people are converted there, it's a problem. It's a great problem. It, it doesn't happen here because polygamy is against the civil law. And if a person is married to even two people at the same time, that's bigamy. And, you know, you get in trouble for that. You can go to jail for that. And so certainly polygamy is outlawed. The question is, is it outlawed in the Bible? Go with me to Genesis 4, and you will notice the first case of a man who was married to more than one wife is in Genesis 4, verse 19. Now, I realize this is in the line of Cain. I also realize that this is even before the flood, let alone before, you know, the New Testament. But Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. You will notice in that passage, that's the first mention of bigamy, and there is nothing said against it. And as you continue to go through Scripture, turn a few pages over to chapter 16. Remember the story of Abraham, married to Sarah. And Sarah can't have a child, and remember the prophecy's been given, and Abraham certainly wants the prophecy fulfilled. God has even reiterated it in chapter 15. Sarah still doesn't have a child. So verse 1, Sarai, Abram's wife, had no children. She had a handmaid, though, from Egypt. Her name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing. I pray you, go in unto my maid, and it may be that I may obtain children. And that was the law then. That was the custom of these people. That I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai, and Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram. But you notice the phrase, to his wife. And as you continue to go through the Old Testament, if you were to go and forsake a time, I won't. But Genesis 29 and 30, Jacob marries, remember, both Leah, Leah and Rachel. Um, 1 Samuel 1, a case that's not often remembered by people. We remember the whole Elkanah, and we remember, you know, the birth of Samuel and Hannah and all of that. Well, we forget that Elkanah was married to two wives. One had children, but Hannah didn't. And if we come to David and we look at 1 Samuel 18 and 25 and other passages, David is married to several women. So the question is, why is he allowed to stay married to Bathsheba? Her husband's dead. But can he take this extra wife that is probably, and I don't remember offhand the number, but at least five or six wives he's got at that point. So what? why is God allowing that? Is polygamy allowed in the Old Testament? Now, without question, if you come to the New, 1 Corinthians 7, let every man have his own wife, every woman have her own husband. Ephesians chapter 5 and the whole parallel between Christ and the church and the husband's ahead of the wife and the wife. In all of that, there's no way you can work polygamy into the New Testament law. But Old Testament, is it allowed? Some people would immediately point to Matthew 19. And they would say, you know, Jesus, and, and I had a professor at Liberty that did this, you know, incidentally. Jesus never honored multiple wives. In fact, this professor would say God always only accepted the first wife in every case of polygamy and, as he would go so far as to say, and was against the additional wives, the second, third. And one of the things I would point out would be, well, where? <laughs> you know, 
I mean, I, I, you know, if God has only accepted the first wife and he spoke against the second and third, where does he do that? Because in all these cases I cited, never do we see God. We don't see Nathan. When he comes to David, we see him talking about what David had done in taking her, in killing Uriah, but now he's married to her. And the child is going to be born, and we don't see one word out of Nathan's mouth about, David, you didn't have a right to marry that woman, and you need to get rid of her. No, we don't see that. We see the child is going to die. David is allowed to continue in the marriage. So what about polygamy? Well, polygamy is just not outlawed in the Old Testament. In fact, God does talk about polygamy. Go with me to Exodus 21, and you'll see something interesting in the Old Testament. Exodus 21, and go down to about verse 10. And what you'll see is that God does not outlaw polygamy, let alone what he might have wanted and would have rather, you know, and, and I'm inclined to think, just like Jesus said in Matthew 19, from the beginning it was not so, and the most ideal situation from the Garden of Eden on is for a man to be married to one woman. But in the Old Testament, God does not outlaw polygamy. In fact, in Exodus 21, go down to about verse 10, when it says this, if he, speaking of a man who's married, if he takes him another wife, notice, another wife, her food, her clothes, her duty of marriage, shall he not diminish. He doesn't say, if he takes a second wife, he needs to get rid of that second wife because I only accept one. Again, we would look at other passages, Deuteronomy 21, Deuteronomy 17, and what we find, you know, that's where he talks about the children born to the woman and which one is going to get the blessing and all of that. God regulates polygamy in the Old Testament, but he doesn't outlaw it. So what have we said? We had three questions. One was, David and Bathsheba committed adultery. Why were they not put to death for the law? Because the law has more than just putting them to death to say. Be found in the act, one or two, all right two or three, rather, witnesses, so that there are at least two witnesses to establish that, and we don't have that in, in the case of David and Bathsheba. Why was David allowed to stay married to Bathsheba? Two things. Bathsheba's free to marry, and a man may marry multiple wives in the Old Testament, under the law of Moses, certainly not under the law of Christ. And three, can a person have multiple wives and as I've just said, yes, under the law of Moses, but certainly not under the law of Christ. Now, this lesson may have raised more questions to you than it did answer them. If it did, please feel free to come to me. I'll be glad to discuss it with you. But that's about the best that I know to do with those questions at this point. Really appreciate the questions. They're very thoughtful and uh, love seeing people studying and asking questions like this. So you keep them coming. We, we'll be glad to do the best we can with them. Are you here tonight? You not obey the gospel? You believe in Jesus? You want to confess that He is your Lord? Tonight you'll repent, be baptized for forgiveness of your sins. Maybe you're here like we had this morning. And you look at your life and you look at what you're doing or have been doing and you know some things need to change and you want to ask for people here to pray together with you. And we'd love to do that. Won't you please come while Kenny leads us in this song.